Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Footy Prime News and Such. Your one-stop destination for footy news and such. Footy Prime, your almost daily footy fix. Hello there, football fans. Welcome to Footy Prime's News and Such. Shams here alongside Forrest. Um, today, we're going to have a little chat with someone that knows Craig really, really well, which I love because we get the, the dirt, <laughs> the real story behind who Craig Forrest is. Um, we may have another guest actually later today as well. We'll save that in case he can find time to pop on. But we're joined right now by former Canadian national team assistant coach, a man with, with many years' experience coaching football. I, I won't say how many years, because that would be to be rude. But it's Alan Errington. Alan, welcome to to Footy Prime for the first time. Really appreciate this. Um, Craig, h- how would you introduce Alan? Legend. Absolute legend is what I would say. Alan is one of the most special people in football that I ever came across. He, as a coach has influenced literally thousands and thousands of different players at all different levels, Um, experienced everything from way back to the soccer bowl days, coaching with Tony Waiters, Bob Leonard Doozy, Johnny Giles, Nobby Stiles, it goes on and on. So there's nobody in Canada that has more experience at coaching uh, than Alan. That's how I'd introduce him. Well, Alan, how would you introduce Craig? Wow, eh? surprised to hear that. <laughs> Better be good. <laughs> How would I introduce Craig? Um, Canada's best ever goalkeeper in soccer. Um, to play in the Premier League is uh, incredible for a kid from British Columbia. Uh, not many get to do that. Um, absolute gem of a guy. He, he is what he is and he, he doesn't have any airs and graces. Down to earth and honest, uh, works hard. And uh, a credit to the game of soccer in Canada is top class. Well, there are the niceties out of the way. <laughs> now I want the dirt. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just joking. Uh, but obviously, you guys go way back a, a long time. When did you first uh, start coaching? I guess with Craig. I never coached Craig uh, at the youth level. Uh, at the time, I was reserve team coach at the Whitecaps, and. Uh, at that time, I knew everybody in, in, the, in the youth program. I knew all the players. I used to phone coaches all the time and say, um, I'm selecting the, the reserve team or the BC select team program. I want to know who you think the best players are. And they would all tell me, oh, my son's the best player. Well, how are you? And I'd say, no, I don't want to hear about your team. I want every coach to tell me the best players on the teams we play against. 
So that way, when you get four or five coaches telling you, uh, oh, you know, Carl Shearer's the best centre-back or whatever, well, you think, oh, yeah, he is. But I knew anyway. But now and again, you might miss one or two. And I used to go and scout him. But uh, I used to go and watch Craig play. And um, Paul Dolan and Pat Olmstead, they were the three best goalkeepers around at that time. And probably the three best goalkeepers, um, not regard, not not counting today's group of players, because the guy in goal now is a very good goalkeeper, but they're the best three we've ever had for Canada during my time. It was interesting, Al, too, that we, we all played in Coquitlam, all three of us, me, yeah. Dolly, and Pat. You know, yeah. uh, Dolly was playing for Bel Air uh, yeah, Soccer Club. Yeah. yeah, I was playing for Bel Air City. Yeah. Uh, the year under. So and both teams were dominating right across Canada. So we yeah. had some great success with that. And then Pat was with uh, Coquitlam Metro Ford, I think. So they all amalgamated, I think, those clubs to make up Coquitlam Metro Ford, which is what we see today. Yeah. I mean, it, the club's a big club now. My grandsons play that. I was coaching there until about three or four weeks ago with my grandson's team in the Division Two House League sort of uh, age uh, group. And uh, loved it, and coached exactly the same way I did. I did the World Cup team on the Whitecaps and eighty sixes, and they loved it. <laughs> Threw the coaching books away. No drills. Never did one drill. We just played every day and coached them in the game, and they absolutely loved it. We went a year and a half without getting beat, and uh, moved up a division and won that as well. And they just loved it. They just loved playing because uh, I think these days, and, and my story starts way, way back when um, I first came to Canada. And I was twenty three years of age. Emigrated to Canada, played football in Richmond, broke my ankle and had pins and steel things put in all that. And I thought, that's me finished playing, you know. And I uh, got involved coaching. I, I was walking through the mall and there was an advert in the window. Coaches wanted Kalani soccer. And I says to my wife, I says, I wonder if I'd get that job if I applied, you know. Well, they just hooked me in and I coached and we won the league, won the cup, nine-year-olds, just played, you know. And then I went on all the coaching courses and did all the drills and all the coaching courses. Fully, fully qualified coach in Canada, uh, prelim and immediate national, and then uh, did the BC team. Had some success. We won the nationals uh, three or four times, I think, with players like Greg Iron, um, Frank Yallop was involved, uh, mm-hmm. Colin Miller. There was quite a few of the lads I had, you know. And um, I got invited to the Whitecaps reserves. I went to the Whitecaps and I uh, was watching their training and I thought, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> yeah, I am fully qualified. I don't know what they're talking about. And it was absolutely ridiculous because here's a guy from England, from Newcastle, England, where soccer's life, it's a passion. And uh, I never got coached in England. All I did was pick the team at half ten and say, yes, well done, lads, oh, you're useless. And that was the only two things you got. <laughs> and I had to come to Canada to learn, learn the game. And I was really fortunate that I was uh, around people like Tony Waiters and watched him do the shadow play at the time he did and how he mm-hmm. organised his team and that. Bob McNabb was a huge influence on my career. Nobby Styles, Johnny Giles, Terry Yorath. And I had a great two years with John Craven coaching the reserves, and mm-hmm. he was absolutely brilliant. Sim- similar, we all had the same philosophies and the same ideas. Little tweaks here and there. Mm-hmm. And then when I got involved with the the Whitecaps, we won the soccer ball or whatever. When I got into the 86s with Bobby, Leonard Dusey, and we coached, we had the same philosophy. We coached the same way Jamesy did and Tony did and, and just had success and never did a drill, never did one drill, just coached the game. And it was intense. And, I, and I've said this to a lot of coaches. I try and mentor a lot of coaches now. And what they do is they get all the drills and they, they put a drill on. If you're not scoring goals, they put a shooting drill on. 
well, that's not going to make you score goals. You don't create chances to shoot. So I try and teach them to get the players to fall in love and enjoy it. And what they do is they do a, they do a warm-up. That'll be 15 minutes. Then they'll do a drill, passing or shooting. That'll do that. And then, then they have a game at the end and they go, that's it. It's over. You know, I've done it. And they've got the time filled and they've done their session. In the game, they all stand back and just let the kids play, you know. They've got it backwards. The game is what should be the most intense. And that's where the coach steps in and puts things right and organizes them in positions and how to close down and how to pass the ball and all that, and all that nonsense in the game, you know. And they don't. And I think the, the coaching courses are great. Everybody's got to do them. They're done all over the world. But a lot of them are put on and organized by school teachers. Mm-hmm. And the pros don't do that, the top pros. And the game's changed. I've got a kid now just at Metro Ford. He's doing his B license. He's asked me if I'd help him. And I said, I'm trying my best. But I, I, when I did mine, I did my prelim, international, the whole lot. I did my English full badge. And those days are different. It was on the field where you did your sessions. Now it's lesson plans and uh, stats and computer work and all that. And I said, I can help you with some of the on-the-field stuff and what, what to look for, the key points when you put your sessions on. But I don't know if I can organize. I don't know if I pass these days. So it's, it's just the game's changing. And mm. for the better, it's, it's, a, it's a good game to watch now. I really enjoy it. Yeah. But I look at the likes of Pep and uh, Jose and the top coaches, and they've got access to all this information um, the stats, the video replays, and, and stat, you know everything. It's the technology is incredible, and I think I don't know for sure, but I think they take that in and coach. But Pet did a great comment the other day called the knowing eye. The knowing eye is an experienced coach who can see things that other people can't see, and the stats don't talk, don't don't show, and that's so important. And he, he says that's the most important thing, and I, I agree with that. When I go to games and watch. Even the youth games, the kids, even the white caps, whoever I watch, I've got like a, a knowing eye, I imagine, because of my experience and the people I've been around. And I learned that by standing next to Nobby Styles and Bob McNabb and Tony Waiters and Giles and that, you know. It, uh, it's, it's just something that the normal soccer fan, armchair coaches can't see. And uh, it's, that's what we need to teach more than the drills. One of the things I, I think, uh, too, is that uh, when you're teaching individuals uh, tactics, uh, philosophy, whatever that may be, is one thing. But the actual coaching of people is as important. And I'm not sure they coach that in, in, in licenses or not, or whether you just have to have a natural feel for that. Because a guy like Pep, for instance, uh, we know he was a terrific player and he's got a fantastic team and he's got the money to buy them. But it's another well, he played thing. played against us, Craig. Pardon me? You know, he played against you. Yes, where? Uh, Montreal, wasn't it? Montreal, he came on a sub. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that was a good run. That was a great run of games, wasn't it? It was a great run of games. You know, uh, it's fantastic. Carry on, carry on. You're talking about uh, Yeah, so Pep, uh, his, his managing of superstars is amazing and maybe the best there is. You're a Klopp, perhaps. We can talk about him as well. But that's his big as anything, isn't it? As far as, uh, I mean, you guys can come across all the tactical stuff, but if you can't manage people, you're going to struggle. I think so. And I think you can be the best technical person and you can learn the game and you can you can have all the information and knowledge and some great players have got that, ex-players, but they don't make great coaches because you've got to have the personality 
to get along with people and get the best out of them, you know. And one of my biggest uh, memories was well, we, we got shafted, I thought, in Toronto and BC played Ontario before uh, the, the Blizzard played, uh, was it Juventus and Baggio was playing. And we, we lost 2-1 in the cup final, BC to Ontario, which they were the two rivals, but we had to get off the field. We should have had a penalty, but the referee didn't give it because we had to get off the field for the next game. There's 40,000 in the stands, you know. And uh, after the game, Colin Miller was on the team. Um, well, there was quite a few players that played at really top level, played on the team. And after the game, I said, right, lads, don't worry about it. You know, the game's over and that's the way it is. And we'll move on. We'll, we'll learn from that. We'll get better. And I said, what do, what do you get out of it? And you know what a few of them says? We want to win for you. And I thought, bloody hell. So we're going to do me, you know. But they, they had, I think they had a bit of respect for me and they wanted to win. They didn't want to let me down. And later on in my coaching career, I mean, we played England in 86 and um, met Bobby Robson. And the mm-hmm. players were like that with Bobby Robson. They didn't want to lose for Bobby Robson because they loved the guy, you know. And I don't think you're going to be a guy that the players have to really like you, but they've got to respect you and, and, and do it because they know you're doing it for them. And uh, even as I've got older, the way I coach is totally different to what I did when I started. And uh, just with my grandson's team last year, I found that I'm talking a lot more encouraging. You know, I, I always used to say it like you give them a five pats on the back and one slap on the head. You know, you, you praise them five times and then you tell them something they've done wrong. Or you put that in the middle somewhere. So you build them up at the end and they go on and they'll try and play for you. You know, but if you just, it's so easy for coaches to see what's wrong and tell the players, you turn them off. You've got to, you've got to learn to deal with people. You've got to be nice to people. Sometimes, sometimes. Which, uh, our team was full of people, uh, players from British Columbia. We were basically made up of Ontario and British Columbia, a few uh, players from Quebec as well. We're not seeing BC being represented uh, as much as in the national team as we used to. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, yeah. It's a shambles. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's How do they fix yeah. it? I think over the years, um, it's not been done on purpose. I think it's all been done with the best of intentions. When I was at the Whitecaps in 78 uh, to 82, uh, 1981, I think it was, there were 64 players from British Columbia playing professional football. 64. That's in the NSL and a few overseas. And uh, Vancouver was a hotbed of soccer in North America. All the, all the teams in the NSL used to come up and draft players from Vancouver, you know, um, New York, Cosmos, San Diego, all over the place. I wanted BC players because the program was, we had the infrastructure and we had a pathway to develop the players and get them into the next level. And we had the um, the BC team where, where we had the club teams and team players played for the clubs. Then they got selected for the BC team, district team, then BC team. And then from there, the better players came to the Whitecaps reserves and moved on and on. But we also had a league here called the Pacific Northwest League. And there was no rules and um, we had uh, Vancouver Reserves, Whitecaps, Seattle Reserves, Portland Reserves, Pegasus, who had all the players in the winter that were playing elsewhere in the NESL. They came home to Vancouver. So they had a team of professionals. Uh, we had Langley, who had quite a few ex-pros. Uh, I got Frank, I was playing for Langley. I got Frank Yallop and Colin Miller to come and play for us. We were only 15, playing against pros, you know. And uh, they played that way. And Colin Miller actually played for Langley Borsato. He played for the Whitecaps Reserves and he played for the BC team. And we had the BC team in the league. So they played for three teams in the league. So they're all playing against teams. You know, and there was one game 
we would play the reserves and Colin was playing, I was coaching the reserves, I didn't play for Langley. Colin was playing for Langley with Frank and big Rawson Dunlop walked Colin and went over the top and, and I don't know if you know a guy, David Robb used to play for the White Caps, played for Scotland, big Scots lad, six foot four, and he grabbed big uh, Rawson by the shirt, get over there and say, sorry, you know, <laughs> and it was just a great league to play in. And then there was one game, um, the BC under-18s, we played against Seattle Reserves at UBC. We played a lovely grass field. And Alan Hinton was the manager. And he brought his first team because they had the opener the following week. There was uh, Ivanov in goal. There was uh, Mike England, Harry Redknapp, um, Roger Davies up front, Alan Hudson in midfield. They had a terrific team. Stevie Bottle. And yeah. time to, to, was, was Bridgie playing for them at that time? Bridgie played centre-back with, him, with uh, Mike England. We tied 2-2, and after the game, Alan Hinton went nuts with me. Your players were all out of order. They were trying to kick my players now. And with Alan, 17, <laughs> Colin played, and, and I, you know, uh, what was his name again? Uh, Larry Dill, Greg Iron, and that, players like that. Great, great players, you know. And Alan Hudson came over and he says, my lad. He says, we didn't want to know because we don't want to get injured next week. But he says, what a good team you've got there, man. So we, we had the programme... To, to put the players and, and and really develop them because they had a, you know, you're playing against, you see who you're playing against there. They up the game and the concentration level is different to what you do if you get an academy team playing another academy team these days, which mm-hmm. is just another, you know, another game. So I think that the, um, the pathway was easier and better to get players to the next level. Um, but slowly but surely they've dismantled that and they've changed it for what they think is the best intentions. And then we had the select league where Kirkutland played Westminster, Burnaby, Richmond and what have you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was good because the players were playing a little bit higher level in the club. And then they said, right, that's good. We'll make that the league. And that became the Metro League, which is now the BC Premier League in BC. And they didn't play for the clubs. They left the clubs. Well, we had them playing for both. And I think that's hurt as well because the clubs lose their identity and they lose them good players to make them better and help players around them. And then instead of having the BC teams now and Ontario and Quebec teams, they have um, the academies. And with all due respect, the Whitecaps, who comes out of the academy? There's nobody. You know, it's, it's not working. So <laughs> they've changed things, changed things. And again, probably the people making the changes aren't soccer people. They're on the board of directors who make good ideas and they don't know. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, Little by little is gone. We've changed it. And we've got to now start looking at what's Ontario doing right? What's, what's Quebec doing right? How are we doing this? And we've got to change and we've got to adapt and become, you know, we can't go back to what we had when we were successful because it doesn't work that way. But we've got to adapt. And I think you need football people in the positions to uh, to see that, you know, the knowing eye to see what's needed and put it right. But it's a bit of a struggle at this point. It's quite yes. Certainly in Ontario, since TFC came on board in 07, um, you have seen, I guess, a professionalization of, of clubs and academies. Yeah. It's really happened here. And that yeah. just hasn't been the case since the, the Whitecaps hit MLS, you don't think, in BC? No, it's not. Um, I mean, as a kid, actually, I, used to, I coached the BC under-13s, uh, BC Premier League team a few years back. And one of the players I had just got his debut, Emilio Brianza. Every is, I can't remember his name. He was a lovely lad. And he was a good player when I had him at that age, 12, 13. And they loved it. There were no, no drills. They loved the training. And we felt we won the Seattle Cup, the SX Cup. We did well with them. 
And then uh, I retired again because of my wife wanted to go cruising all the time. I couldn't commit. And I felt guilty because you get paid, right? I got paid when I was doing all this when I was younger. But now you get paid, I felt guilty. So I had to pack it in and say, no, I can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be there for some of the time. And I regretted that because I loved it, you know. So, uh, but they, they've got players. There's good players at the clubs, as good as anyone else. The, the players in BC right now at 12 and 30 are as good as in Ontario, as good as in Quebec. It's what happens from there on. How do we get the best out of them? And uh, I don't think they're doing it at the White Cup. So they certainly haven't done it since I've been watching. Well, Al, we you know lots of uh, talk about our national team right now. They're going to be going to the World Cup, ninety nine point nine eight percent chance apparently. Uh, so let's count on that. Uh, you were part of the coaching staff of 1986 with Tony Waiters and Bob Bearpark and that crew. Uh, tell us how that was and. That whole run uh, leading to 86 uh, and even the game on the East Coast that people are were thinking, I think a lot of people still think it was a strategic move, but I don't believe that that was the case. I believe it was the only place that really wanted to host it. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a few factors in there. Um, we, we, again, it was, I think it was 16 players from BC in this squad of 22. And we had a good team. We had good players at that time, and that was because of the NESL. Uh, although the NSL had fallen by then, the remnants of the NSL were still were still good professional players who played at a good level. So that was uh, that was evident, and um, the, the team was successful because of Tony Waiters, without any shadow of a doubt. Um, before that, we'd had uh, Barry Clark, a school teacher coach, and he was okay, but not Tony Waiters. You know, we had we had other coaches, and uh, Tony came in and brought some stability and simplified the game so the players could play the game and they knew exactly what they were doing. And uh, they, they did really well. And, and at that time, there was only Tony Raiders, Les Wilson, and uh, Bob Bearpark, assistant coach. I was a staff coach. But he didn't have a lot of staff around him. You look at now, they've got, they've got uh, so many staff, more staff than players. It's, it's, it's working because that's the way today's game is. But uh, we didn't have the luxury of that, you know, and even when I was involved, I never got paid. No, even when I was with the, with the, Olymp- the World Cup and Olympic team, I used to take time off work and come back, and I was I was a couple of hundred dollars short the next paycheck because you know I didn't get it. But now the um, the throw-in coach is probably getting more money than I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just session. true though, isn't it? I mean, our training sessions, you know, I did the whole lot. But anyway, yeah. um, no regrets. Loved every minute of it. But Tony was fabulous and. Um, the team believed in them and they worked hard and, and uh, they got the results. And then the game in, in Newfoundland, um, the, uh, I don't think it was, it was, it wasn't a bad idea to play there because of the cold and the wind and what have you. But I don't think that was the only reason. I think there wasn't other venues available at the time and they, they got there. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I, I don't believe that. And uh, then when they got there, they, they played and got the result. And, and who was it that played? Honduras, was it? And uh, a lot of the fans from Honduras went to St. John in New Brunswick. They got the, they got the wrong plane ticket. And they, they didn't get to the game in Newfoundland, you know. Yeah. It's a terrific result. Got to the World Cup. And, hey, uh, uh, sorry, Ellen. Yeah. On that, so 86, right, or leading up to 86, there was a, a very young goalkeeper making some noise in England in Ipswich. Um, and, and, he, and he was very confident and thought, man, I, I could definitely make this World Cup squad. But he didn't make the World Cup squad. And to this day, he, he, he bitches about it. 
yeah. what, what was the issue with Craig Forrest and, and his, his non-selection for that World Cup? I think um, the first choice was Tino Letieri, who played in the NASL. He, was, he played for Canada, right from Thailand. He was number one. And then um, I remember Tony wrote a book called, uh, what's he called? But it's a picture of his son, Scott, on the book. And he asked me if I can get some players to take some pictures. So I got uh, Paul Dolan, a guy called Paul Adams, who uh, played in Delta. And I got another lad who was at the White Caps, who's now a multi-millionaire uh, artist, Ralph Mazzucco, Raphael now. He sells his paintings for thousands and thousands. Oh, he's a great and, um, and he introduced it to Dolan. And then he, I said, oh, Dolan's doing well and playing the BC team for me and what have you. And Les knew him well as well because I was always around Les and working with him with BC Soccer and CSA. And uh, they brought Paul Dolan in and... Uh, they just loved him. I mean, he did really, really well. And with all due respect, Craig, we never heard your name mentioned. To be honest, I don't know the new where you were. You know? No, you're right. They didn't. They I didn't know where it was. Yeah, because what happened? Because of Bobby Robson, didn't it? And Bobby Robson's connection to Vancouver. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Bobby Robson's first coaching job was yeah. in with the Vancouver Imperials. I think they were called Vancouver the Royals. Royals. That's right. Yeah, Pushkis. Yeah. Pushkis. Yeah, amazing, amazing history in Vancouver. Really, it, it goes way beyond what most people think, for sure. Um, it's amazing. Uh, I, I really don't think they, they were aware of you and your ability because uh, Dolly was in the eye with the BC team playing in the reserve league and what have you, mm-hmm. and here you're overseas. And uh, I don't know if you were in the first team by that time, were you? But I don't think really anybody knew who Craig Forrest was or whether they knew who you were, but they didn't know. What level you were at, you know? Yeah, no, right. that's absolutely true. And then what happened was they, uh, the the club, I remember Charlie Woods, uh, Bobby Ferguson, who had just taken over from uh, Sir Bobby Robson, uh, contacted the Canadian Soccer Association and really just got, got custard pied, really. Uh, and it was 87 that I played in the Under-20 World Cup with uh, that group of guys. And and then the Sir Stanley Matthews Cup in 88 after that. So, uh, yeah, I was a little bit disappointed that I, I wasn't, at least looked at, uh, and they uh, blanked me at the time. But that's okay. Craig? Frank Gallup as well. They didn't really know much about Frank, did they? Because Frank no. was at the clinic when you were there too, and uh, he's, he's about the same age as Colin. Colin was in the squad mm-hmm. of 22, but Frank was overlooked because he was out of sight, out of mind, I guess. Well, what happened, what happened with Frank Gallup was actually that back then, playing for a youth He played team, for England five games. Right. He played for England youth, so he was tied. Yeah. Not like nowadays, you can actually change once, but yeah. back then you were tied. So the good thing about Sir Bobby Robson moving into the England setup was that we knew that there was a possibility if they could waive this. didn't look likely that they would waive the rule, but Bobby Robson got a hold of FIFA and said, listen, we're, we'll pass on Frank. He's not going to be playing for England. We'll, we'll let him go and play for Canada. And they agreed to that. So oh. that's what that's why Frankie ended up coming over, but he he, he definitely missed a few years uh, with the national team because of that reasoning being tied to England because he had played youth games, which is really is quite insane yeah. when you think about it and a little yeah. bit unfair. Uh, yeah. But the, the, the team, uh, I mean, I was a staff coach. I'm very proud of the fact that I was involved in the '86 World Cup. However, I didn't go. <laughs> Tony was. Uh, in his later days, he's admitted that he, he he made a bit of a mistake. And as much as he said it, 
there's, there's 22 players coming to Mexico. He says, I don't want anybody unhappy and causing problems. So I'm only going to take 18. And I'm going to leave four players in Vancouver in the satellite. And I trained them every day. We trained every day. There was Greg Ian, Colin Miller, Sven Haberman, Pasquale De Luca. And we had another guy stayed with us, but wasn't in the squad. It was Don Ferguson, the goalkeeper. So I trained them every day when the World Cup was on and prior to that when they were down in, uh, in a plateau. And um, they were there in case there was an injury. And we, in fact, Pasquale went in to Mexico. What Tony said afterwards, he says he should have brought them in for experience and told them up front, you're not playing, there's no chance of getting on the field. Take it in, get the experience, learn from it. Mm. But uh, been good because I, I would have been there as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You, would have, you have quite a group there because Sam Haberman is just an absolute, unbelievably funny oh, like, gentleman, Colin Miller off the, off the chart sideways. Oh, well, I started then when I was doing the uh, the reserves at the Whitecaps. Um one of the white white caps first team goal. It was during the Johnny Giles era. David Harvey broke his neck. Uh, he was actually drinking, driving the bottle of wine, and crashed his car on the Friday night. And on the Saturday, they played in Minnesota. And uh, Tony Waiters got Les Les for me at two in the morning. We needed the goalkeeper for the game. I haven't got a goalie, so so I phoned up um, Randy Keane, who was uh, the BC team goalkeeper and reserve, and he played against Minnesota. They won one nil. So then we played on the Sunday with reserves against Croatia and uh, we had to get a goalie. So I'm phoning around all the goalies I know and I couldn't get anybody. And I remember I had this kid I did on the burn of the under-18s called Sven Haberman. And he was big, six foot four, and he was okay, but that was special, he was okay. So I got Sven to come and I phoned him up, yeah, yeah, I'll play, I'll play, yeah. So I said, you know, we played, we lost, lost 7-2. <laughs> I played actually in that game as well. We lost 7-2. Sven was only to blame for six. He was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's calling me, so he, he couldn't keep elephants out of a phone box. <laughs> he was uh, not the best. And then after he didn't found out he was suspended. He shouldn't have played anyway. <laughs> so we, we had him at the reserve for a couple of weeks. And Tony just took a shine to him and says, He's got something. You know, Tony worked with him and developed him and, and crafted him into one of Canada's best goalkeepers. At the time, he was very good. But off the field, oh my God. Funniest guy I've ever met in your life. He was funniest man hilarious. ever. Uh, yeah. Some of the stories we can't even tell on it. <laughs> oh, you can. <laughs> if you were told back in '86 that it would be another 36 years before Canada qualified for for a World Cup, would you have believed it back then? No. Uh, you see what happens when you get qualified? You get a lot of money from FIFA and TV rights, and the money goes into the program. So you send your youth teams to lots of tournaments and games, preparing them to qualify for the Youth World Cup. We qualified for the Youth World Cup. I went there in Trinidad. We, we finished first or second, Mexico in the final. Played in Russia in the World Cup in 85, Moscow and Minsk. And then, you know, we thought it was going on, going on. But failing to qualify in 92, was it? No, 90, was it? 90, when uh, Tony Taylor and Bruce Tomley had the team. They were a, bit, a little bit short and failed. And uh, it was a bit of a downhill because we lost the money and there's not as much money to spend developing the rest of the teams. And then the closest we ever got was when Bobby and I were doing it in 94 in the US, when uh, at that time there was only 24 teams in the World Cup and two from CONCACAF. One was the US, the host nation. So there's only one qualification spot for grabs. And we were 20 minutes away from getting it. We were, I think we won the lot against Mexico and finished up yeah. losing 2-1. 
Yeah, we were one 0 up. Uh, Lyndon Hooper scored a goal that was called yeah. offside. It went, we would have. I still don't know if that was offside or not. I don't think it was. Well, there's a few things about that game, though, Craig. I've often wondered this since. I remember, I remember um, Bobby says, "How do we approach the game?" And I says, "Well, when we play that's Tekka, they play at one o'clock in the afternoon. It's red hot, hundred hundred degrees. Uh, they make the field as big as they can. FIFA rules, and it's massive. It's seven thousand feet above sea level, so." By the time you run up that spiral staircase at the back of the goal, you can't breathe, you know. And uh, I says to Craig, once you got bad breath, he says, why is that? Because you breathe out your ass. <laughs> not wrong. <laughs> but you can't play, in the, you know, and there's 140,000 there, and you have no chance. So it's in a varsity, let's make the field as small as we can for FIFA standards, and let's get at them. Let's rattle them. Let's knock them about a bit. Get stuck in, and we'll, they don't want to know, you know. So Les went to the meeting and asked him to change the field sizes. And then on the Saturday before we played on the Sunday, uh, we're on the field training. I'm doing the session. We're just finishing off with a bit of a, a game. And Kevin Pike runs on the field. Alan, get the players off. Get the players off. Mexico's here. He says, you what? Tell them to piss off. I says, that's what they do with us. No, get lost. No, get them off. Mexico's here. And the bus is great, you know. And I thought, that's not right, you know. And then we get to the game on the Sunday and they change the lines on the field. You can see the lines painted down. Then the lines were put on, they made the field bigger. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what's going on here? And then the National Anthem, do you remember that, Craig? Mm-hmm. National Anthem, and the Mexican music went off, and they're all nervous and what happened. And the next thing is the Chester stuck out singing the anthem, and we just wound them up. And, I, and I've often wondered, yeah. you know, the, the Mexicans playing the World Cup, there's more money in TV rights and uh, than Canada and what have you. And mm. It's a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth, but you never know. You know? Yeah, you know, you're right. There there was a lot of things around that. I mean, it's amazing because I actually brought that up uh, recently because the game in Hamilton against the United States, John Herbin had the pitch brought in uh, two and a half meters on either side, still within the uh, legal limits. Yeah. Um, and that just reminded me that we tried to do the same thing in a game that we had to win to go to the World Cup. And the pitch was actually bigger. I mean, yeah, there's uh, many different things. There was a German referee came over German as well. referee? Where did they come from? They come from Germany, obviously, but how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. I always had a CONCACAF referee. Man, that wouldn't have made a difference, would it? No, no. I think we actually thought maybe we'd be better off with a German referee. But when you really think about it from an economic standpoint, uh, the World Cup was in the United States. Mexico is a bigger or better supported team in the United States than the United States are. Yeah, they couldn't. They could not afford that. And if they had lost, they would have gone to the backdoor route, which we had yeah. that quarter <laughs> spot. Yeah. Sure, uh, we be if we beat Australia, which we lost on penalties, we'd have, that played Diego Maradona. So we went from Hugo yeah. Sanchez to Diego yeah, Maradona. We, we won that game. Uh, I think because again, I mean, if it was like today, would have been in the World Cup in the US with three teams. Mm-hmm. Um, if we qualified, there's more money to set up for the next. For the next uh, program, you know, and more money to have big games. Because even though we, we didn't qualify, playing those five games, Germany, Spain, Morocco, Brazil, and, and the Netherlands, that was great yeah. for our program. If we could have gone to the World Cup and then played teams like that afterwards and develop our players and give them experience, we would have qualified in 98 as well. Because uh, there would have been a belief and the crowd would be behind it the whole bit, you know. But... Because you don't qualify, you go further down the slope. And when you do qualify, you get more money, you can play up the slope. You know? so it's, yeah, it's, it's almost it's like we, 
we need sustained winning to be able to do yes. this. I mean, we've seen the women do it since 2000 and well, 2012, let's say when they got bronze at the Olympics and then, and then on and on until gold last time with the men now and with the rules and everything's changing. Um, we're going to host the world cup in 2026. And then it's also expanded to 48 teams. So there could be as many as 10 CONCACAF teams, eight automatic, two playoff that reach the World Cup. That's going to water it down, obviously, but it's going to put us in a position where we should be ever present from here on in. Um, I think so. And I, and I think uh, what will happen is the weaker teams will get three games and they'll make money from that. And then all it goes. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it'll still be similar that the teams that don't make it will slide further down the, down the slope. But, um, you know, people want to see us in the World Cup. And we've never scored a goal in the World Cup. You know, we haven't. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think um, this team's got a chance to do it this one coming around. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt they're going to qualify. And I think when they get there, they, they might surprise a few teams as well. I yeah, on, on that, I mean, as someone that, you know, you watch football for, for a long time, you've seen Canada develop over, you know, the course of the, these decades. This current team, we, we see them at the moment boss a CONCACAF region, which isn't quite as strong as it has been in previous years. You know, the states are in transition. Mexico's maybe in a decline, but still, they're doing the job. They're getting it done. How good can this current team be when they start playing? So they get drawn with a France or a, and a Switzerland, for example, at, at the World Cup, which is possible. What, how, how can they compare against those types of teams, do you think? I think they do okay. I really do. I mean, even if you look at us playing uh, Brazil, we tied Brazil, you know, and uh, we, we played well against Germany and against uh, the Netherlands. We played quite well. Well, Spain beat us 3-1 in, in Montreal, but we played quite well, and those games helped. Mm-hmm. I think this team can compete with the other teams, and I think the way John Hurden has got them believing in themselves, I don't see any reason why they can't go out with the attitude and the mentality they are going to beat this lot. There's no reason why we shouldn't beat a Denmark or a Switzerland or a Sweden or whatever. <clears throat> no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think John Herdman's, Herdman's done a fantastic job. Um, mind you, they've got a lot more money and resources than what we did when we were doing the team. Uh, but that's, you know, good for the CSA to uh, put the money up. And, I mean, they, everywhere they do, they, they look they, they look strong everywhere. We wonder that some of the better players don't come in. Um, they just step up and do the job and subs come on the field and they don't skip a beat. You know, there's a belief there. And, that's to me. That's coaching. Having that belief, it's not putting drills on. It's coaching like that and mm-hmm. getting the players to believe in themselves and do the job. Some of them may not be as good as the players we had in '94, '86. However, if they've got that belief, they think they are, and then they are. Mm-hmm. And we also have players. I mean, we've never had before. I mean, with tier one plus players, you know, Alfonso Davies, an exception. Uh, you know, you talked about the Vancouver Whitecaps system. He was more of a, what do you say, sort of luck to, you know, how that sort of oh, panned out. Speak of nature. I mean, it, yeah. it, it just happened that he was, he's an athlete. He could have played any sport. He's just an athlete. He's, you know, he's so quick. He can catch pigeons, can't he? Mm-hmm. He's that quick. He's, uh, <clears throat> he's phenomenal. And uh, I thought the Whitecaps, in, in all fairness to them, although I have been critical of some of the way they've handled players and not got players come through. I think they handled pretty, pretty well at the time, not playing too much, but they brought him in gradually, but he made a difference. He had to play. Mm-hmm. Is, is there one player in this current Canadian squad that as a coach you'd love to spend some time with on, on the field? Oh, yeah. The, what's his name? Um, the guy, what's his name? Hutchison. 
Tiba, what a player. What a player. He's, he's the best player for me. He's uh, box to box, works hard, so professional, uh, mm. top player, top player. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that a lot of Canadian fans have just got to know him because he's been around for an awful long time through yes, a, a, a period of time when Canada has really been shitty. He, and yet, a professional and a win-loser draw showed up all the time um, and really never got the credit. I don't think he, that he really was uh, deserved. I mean, but his career, maybe not in the top, top leagues in the world, but when he start when he's playing Denmark, he's in the Copenhagen all-time 11. So yeah. show you what he's done at that club. Then he's done an amazing job moving around. Now he's in Turkey with Besiktas, which has, a, you know, they have that utmost respect for him and other players that he's bringing over. They're all with the, the club want Canadian players. Which is, yeah. And he's what, 39 years of age now. So uh, there was a chance he wasn't going to be involved in the World Cup uh, qualifications. So, I mean, that wasn't... Well, he, well, he seems a real... I've never met the guy, but he seems a real genuine good guy. <clears throat> honest. Um, he reminds me of... Uh, what's his name? Place for Chelsea. Uh, and got me... What's his name? Uh, little guy in midfield. Place and got Can't the same thing. bollocks off, don't he? And yeah, uh, yeah. never says a word. And the team is similar, but he's just taller. Yeah. I really yeah. think if he wasn't Canadian, you know, if he was oh, French, he, he would have been given an opportunity at, at a really big club oh, or certainly cool. in one of the top three leagues in the world because he's I that agree. good. Yeah. 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 I think I think the stigma for, for Canadians, Americans, uh, CONCACAF in general has definitely got better. Uh, I, I think we, I was talking a little bit about it yesterday that Jesse Marsh gets hired by Leeds United, uh, American coach, um, talking about Ted Lasso, you know, all these different things great are going to come up. Eh? Yeah, great press you know, conference. If he, if he had a different color skin, they'd be calling people racist for having a Gordon. Well, because he's American, it's okay to have a Gordon. That's not right. If he's no. a good coach, he's a good coach. Leave the land alone, give him a chance. Exactly. I agree he's with you. Well, by the way. He is a good coach and he's yeah. experienced. He's, he's yeah. put some time in over in Europe. Yeah. He's put his time in here. Um, so I deserve, he gets a, you know, he deserves to get that chance. He's certainly capable and, uh, he will be under the microscope though, because he is American. Yeah. So that's, that stigma yeah. is still there for coaches, especially, uh, from North America. And players. And players. He was very honest in that press conference when he said, you know, he, he left the States because he, he understood that it wasn't the same atmosphere wasn't the same reality as playing in Europe. Yeah. Now, that might upset Don Garber and MLS <laughs> when he hears that, but he's being honest, right? I mean, the States, sure. North American football's getting there. We're getting there. But yeah. let's not compare it just yet to Europe because it just isn't a football culture just yet. And, you know, it's going to take a Jesse Marsh uh, to jump overseas and be successful. When he's successful, that narrative will change, I think. And I think today's teenage or Twitter is, uh, is the judge and jury of what happens to people. And the people, the armchair critics on there and coaches who've never kicked the ball, uh, they'll slaughter them and have a go at him, you know. The only people he's got to impress are the players. And if the players believe in him and he gets success, then he's over the hump and he's gone. And But that's difficult. Uh, even, you know, I mean, a lot of player power in the dressing rooms these days. But uh, he understands that. If he's, if he's good enough, he'll get through it. And he's he's replacing... He's replacing uh, a living legend in Marcelo Bielsa, who didn't do a good job this year from a result standpoint. It's incredible seeing this team in Leeds, who you know have conceded sixty goals on the brink of the relegation zone. Yet the fans are gutted 
that this guy was fired. I mean, that says a lot about him and his personality. You don't see that very often. No, he's a quality guy by the looks of it. I mean, even after he's been let go, he's meeting fans in the streets and helping people and doing stuff. And again, the, the fans in general who actually go to the games uh, have a better understanding than the ones who just sit and complain about it. Um, they realise that he's, he's a quality guy. And I think it's the same with all clubs these days. The border under so much pressure to win that they have to fire people. I would think, leave him alone, even if they go down, keep him for four or five years and see what you get. Because I think he would come out of it. He's such a quality guy. Uh, he knows the game. There's no doubt about his knowledge of the game. Mm-hmm. And he's a decent guy. And uh, it's too easy to fire coaches these days. It's crazy. Yeah, for sure. That's that pressure of the uh, relegation, isn't it? The, the teams, and they're so scared to death about relegation. They're hoping for a manager's bump, which... Well, I know does- that too well with that because... You know, my, my two favourite clubs are the Vancouver Whitecaps and Newcastle United. <laughs> over the last few years, it's, you know, this was black hair about three months ago. It's gone grey now. Yeah, and, don't worry about that. Newcastle are going to be just fine. Oh, yeah, I think they'll be oh, all right. I mean, can't wait for tomorrow. My wife's even become a fan. We're going to go to a game. I'm, get, I'm going back in October. I'll get some tickets. We'll get to a game at St. James. And, you know, the only table one here. The wife should be drowned out. Hey, they're, they're soaring up the table right now. They're going to be competing for European spots before the season's out the way they're playing. Big game tomorrow, Brighton. Big game tomorrow. They'll miss Big Dan Burn. I don't think he's playing. But, it's you know, a huge game, yeah, for point. sure. Listen, Alan, thanks so much. Really enjoyed this. We could talk a lot longer, and we'll get you back on um, with some other guys from Craig's past as well. Um, we've got some ideas for some roundtable-type conversations, which I think would be really interesting. I think it's great to get that perspective from, you know, 30 years ago from, from the era of Canadian yeah. football and, and just how, how good that group of players was and sadly how it hasn't quite, you know, the well, I made, a, I made a few notes. Craig told me last night, he texted me and he says, tell some stories. I've made a few stories. I've got loads of stories to tell if we ever get back on. And well, tell can, one right now. Eh? we got tell time. One tell one right one. now. Yeah, yeah, I, got you. <laughs> 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 oh, I'll tell you one. We were in El Salvador when you got pelted with the bags of piss. That's the yeah. same penalty. But um, during, the, during the, when we got there, we were training on a shocking field. So this guy comes up and says, why don't you come and train at our school? I said, what school? He said, we have a British school. So we went and trained there. I don't even remember. And all the kids were there getting autographs. The field was brilliant. So great. He says, so the next day he comes over at the hotel and he says, we have a British pub. Would you like to come to the British pub? So we felt a bit obliged. So me, Barry Crocker, um, Kevin Muldoon, and I can't remember who the physio was, but the physio came as well. And the ambassador for Canada drove us to this little pub above a laundromat in a real bad area of San Salvador. So we get in there, we goes in, they've got a pool table and they've got a bar and it's a nice club at the pub, you know. And there's about a dozen guys in there playing pool, having a few drinks. So go to the bar, me and Crocker, talking to this guy from Sheffield. His name was uh, Bill Stevenson. <laughs> and I says, uh, Sheffield went to support over Newcastle, Crocs, Tottenham. And we're talking away and uh, chatting about football. Well, then I go over to the, uh, the pool table. There's two Geordies, two lads from Newcastle. He says, what are you doing here? He says, oh, with the SES. Oh. I said, what? He said, yeah, with the SES. He says, and every day we used to go training, Craig. There was a big building, 15 stories in black glass, all tinted black glass. And that night we're driving to the pub. The 13th floor, all the glasses broke all around. So I said, what are you doing there? He says, oh, with the SES. And... The guy you've been talking about, oh, there, Billy, he's the real James Bond. He says, uh, 
they phoned us and uh, we get a helicopter, we come in here and the rebels have taken the radio tower in the building. So we get in there, a few stun grenades, a few rounds of machine gun and we just stay here for a couple of years, you know. And go there. <laughs> I says to Croc, don't start any fights here, Croc. Make sure we don't, we don't beat them in the pool. <laughs> then we're getting, we had to get back, so I never realised how to get back. It's dodgy places, you know. So I goes outside and I flags a taxi down, a little tiny taxi. So we squeeze in, there's three in the back and, and me in the front and the driver. So we're driving along and he goes to a red light, slows down and goes right through the red light. So Kevin will do nudges me. So the next thing is, next red light, straight through the red light. So Kevin, hey, senor, Rosa, Rosa, red light, red light. Oh, senor, we stop red light, bang, bang. We no stop red lights. <laughs> get me back to the hotel. So we get back to the hotel, that was it. And then on the way back, you got robbed, I remember. We, uh, we won 2-1. Yeah. And uh, we stayed up all night singing downstairs in the lounge. Yeah. And then on the way back, I went get the bag on the road at five in the morning. The bus comes. I threw my bag under the bus. And then you guys got your bags. And they go, no, no, in the, in the van, in the van. All the bags go in the van. So they put the bags in the van. We get in the bus. We go to the airport. There's no van. So the van comes 15 minutes later. And uh, everybody's lost their stuff. You had a load of strips and tracks which you had signed for the charity. They took all their boots and yeah. access to the cops. We've got the van. They stole our stuff and the cops went, your airplane is leaving. Off you go. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Remember Mark watching. He was absolutely livid because I remember oh, we pulled we pulled our bags off. I was like, "Hold on a minute." These these guys left 15 minutes before us, and they arrived 15 minutes after us. Yeah. Something's not adding up here. Open up my bag, and I had a sweaty El Salvador jersey, stinky jersey, sitting right on top. It was gone. I went, lads. Check your bags. And Wadi was, oh, my God, electronics, everything. So they I was on the bus. Uh, see, experience, Craig. I was on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, don't worry. We'll look into it. Uh, your flight's leaving. Bye-bye. And and that was the end of it. We never oh, saw Every trip, there was something happened. Every trip we went on anywhere, there was an incident. Something happened. And I made a few notes. So if we get back home, we'll have a few laughs. We will. <laughs> what we'll do, we'll, we'll get some guys on, and we'll just have a, have a CSA story time. And just go round the circle, each telling a story. I think yeah. it'd be an amazing podcast, actually. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, Miller will a few stories. Oh, Alan, yeah. thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Great. Thanks very much. Enjoyed the day. That's Alan Errington. Um, hope you enjoyed that. We certainly did. Uh, Craig, uh, very nostalgic for you. I'm sure you got a little misty-eyed there, thinking about <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, especially talking to Alan, who, who's, you know, goes back so far. So when you want to talk about... You know, even the old soccer ball days in 1979 mm. when I was, uh, you know, a young boy, but he was part of it. So he goes back so far into, into the history of Canadian soccer. It's, it's, it's very few people, uh, that can, can, uh, talk with the experience of, uh, like Alan Arrington has. And it's important to them. I mean, there is a history of Canadian soccer, right? Right now we're kind of getting lost in this, this amazing era and what's about to happen. Mm. And that's great, but we, we shouldn't neglect the past. And sure, there's been struggles and there's the media last report and all the, the negativity around, you know, Canadian men's soccer for so many years, but it's not all bad, right? There's some great characters, some great stories. I think it's important that we don't forget that. Well, that's right. As well as, uh, you know, for new fans out there, 
that want to sort of know a little bit about the history of the Canadian Soccer Association or soccer in this country. Uh, that's why we're doing this. I mean, it's great to have guys like Alan on to talk about that and the development and, you know, where's BC going, where they come from as far as coaching goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, it's longer speaking, but I wanted to just jump in because now, you know, Sharms, we've been listening to Craig bitch about not making the 86 world cup team for 20, 20 years since we've known him <laughs> in television. And now we know who to blame and I've got him in the green room. It's Alan Arrington. Fuck Alan. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. We have to live with it. It wasn't Alan's fault. It wasn't Alan's fault. It's Waiters and Dolan. It it just shows. No, what it shows is it shows the (laughs) the the scouting back in the '80s was pathetic, and how they weren't aware of European-based players who might be pretty good because they're European-based. And they ignored them. I think it's hilarious. It's Alan, we just brought you in. Do you have anything to say uh, on the back end? Because I am blaming you for us having to listen to Craig. <laughs> I can handle it, Craig. I'll take it. I've got big shoulders and great hair. <laughs> <laughs> I've been slagged by experts. Idiots don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, make sure you, you follow this, you like this, you subscribe, tell your friends. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday night with a wrap of the weekend, including, of course, the Mank Derby. All right, cheers, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.